Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning, the 27th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. And we'll begin today by talking to Independent TD for Roscommon Galway, Michael Fitzmaurice, once again, about his proposal to establish a new Dutch-style farmers' political party. As you know, his idea is that this party would represent rural Ireland on one hand, and on the other hand, it would be an anti-green party alliance that would fight green policies. Good morning to you, Michael Fitzmaurice, and thank you indeed for joining us once again on the programme today. The chairperson of the Green Party joins us too, and good morning to you, Senator Pauline O'Reilly, and thanks as well for joining us. And I'd like to start with you, Senator O'Reilly, if I can. Your party is accusing Michael Fitzmaurice of taking a lesson out of the Donald Trump populist propaganda handbook. Why so? Well, we've heard this now from Michael for several months um, that it, he wants to start a party that is anti our party. And, you know, ultimately what this is about is is just trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. There's absolutely no truth to the Greens being anti-rural Ireland. Most of us have connections um, to, to rural Ireland, as you know. I'm Galway-based myself. Um, and more investment has been put in than ever before into rural Ireland under this um, government and particularly from the Green Party. So, you know, it's it's very easy to, to say we're going to start a party that's anti that party, but there actually doesn't seem to be any policies behind what he's talking about. And in fact, um, you know, Michael is one of only 10 TDs to have voted against climate action. So what this really is, is anti-environment. And that is very, very concerning for me um, because the farmers that I speak to know that the future is a green future. And what they really want is to hear, we're going to um, support nature, but we're going to make sure that farmers have money in their pockets. And I think that people are worried at the moment. Of course they are. And this kind of stirring and fear-mongering is actually um, not not serving farmers. And it's not serving the people that I know. So um, I think it's really unfortunate. Um, but I'm, you know, always happy to debate with Michael. I, mm. I have respect for him in lots of ways. But this just um, smacks of vote getting at a really base level that uh, politics should be above, in, in my view. There's many rural TDs in the Dáil, apart from Michael Fitzmaurice. And we'll come to Michael Fitzmaurice in a, a moment, who I'm sure is more than capable of speaking for himself. Uh, but many others, uh, rural-based independent TDs, who are fed up to the gills with Green Party policies, uh, and they make that known on an ongoing basis. Michael Fitzmaurice has proposed establishing this political 
anti-Green Party. Uh, but he's not the only one. Another group of independents have said that they will also set up a, a party and they've already got 20 candidates to run. So it's not completely true to say uh, that he's on a, a solo run here, that he's not representing people in rural Ireland who are anti-green, who don't like your policies. It's it's absolutely fair to say it's not a solo run because it isn't just independence. There are a lot of political parties who actually, the way that they seem to go about politics is um, attacking other people and fear-mongering. And actually, the, the um, you know, what we've seen is that um, research shows that just as many people in rural Ireland as in urban Ireland care about the environment. We need to make sure that everyone is on board, everybody is a leader when it comes to climate action in, in politics. Um, but let's let's just look at the facts. You know, um, the the acre scheme has been oversubscribed. That's about supporting biodiversity, but also putting um, money in farmers' pockets. The um, before we came into government, you had to get planning permission to put solar panels on farm buildings. We've eliminated that, and we've also put grants in place of up to two thousand four hundred for solar panels on farm buildings. We have one new rural bus service coming online every single week um, it, uh, last year and this year. So these are things that really okay. do make a difference there, there, in there, their lives. There are some of the Green Party policies and there are of course many more. Michael Fitzmaurice said uh, the accusation being made against you this morning is that you've no policies, you've no solutions that all you're doing here is attacking uh, your opponents politically and scaremongering. First of all, good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Martin Pauline. And good morning to your listeners. Um, I laughed. I smiled to myself when I heard what was going on. Um, first of all, Pippa Hackett has made the accusation, um, but she won't come out and fight me uh, on the airwaves. Pauline seems to be the battering ram now. Um, second of all, it's said when the Green Party has been ringing up radio stations around the country looking for interviews against Michael Fitzmaurice. Uh, is it that you're running for Europe or something, Pauline? With the trend of radio stations I've seen. But I will address all the, all the things that you've talked about there, Michael. First of all, I'm not anti-green. Um, for, I've been brought up in rural Ireland. I know what it is to farm, live, work in it, look after the environment. Unlike you, Pauline, for that matter. Second, Secondly, is it Michael Fitzmaurice on his own? Why did Macra walk to Dublin yesterday? Was it because are making too much money? Was it because they have houses? Was it because everything is hunky-dory? The facts are that Macra walked to Dublin yesterday as young farmers because, first of all, they stated, not me, or not Donald Trump, and it's not fake news. They stated that they don't know their future in farming. They are uncertain about their housing situation. And that in rural Ireland at the moment, they don't know whether they have a viable future or not. And whether we like it or whether we don't, between the small towns and the whole of rural Ireland, the agricultural sector is huge. Is it fake news at the moment that we are going into a situation where um, the nitrates has changed? Is it fake news that we are going into a situation where um, the nature restoration... Yeah. The Administration law is being proposed in Europe, supported by Minister Ryan, and uh, it will end up that 30, 40 percent of land in certain counties in this country, farmers won't be farming it because they want to rewet. And it's just in that eye of things begin rewetting. Certain people 
may go for it. But the consequences and the economic consequences down the line will be disaster. And when you hear people talking from a loft about rural Ireland or policies involved in it that never done anything within or never lived in it, worked in it, built a community in it and worked with a community in it, then you don't seem to... Okay, maybe we'll take up on that point to begin with uh, because you're you're contradicting the chairperson of uh, the Green Party. Pauline O'Reilly, you said you're from rural Ireland. Did you ever work in it and live in it, uh, as Michael Fitzmaurice puts it? I, well, I, I'm Galway-based, and uh, absolutely, oh, Michael is correct. No, hold on one second now, Michael. One second. Um, and, and Michael is absolutely correct. I am from uh, an urban part of Galway, but I represent the whole of Connemara and the you islands as well. And one second, one second, Michael. You got in through the sham. Okay. Maybe we'll come back to you in a moment. Uh, yeah, to, to, be, to be fair, Michael, um, you know, Yes, Roisin, Garvey has al- Roisin Garvey has also been out in relation to this. Yeah, but am I right or not? Also been I said there. Relation to this, so there is me- there is many of us, and my my family are okay, actually farmers. Listen, listen, Michael. There's a walk around the corridors of the doll yesterday. She met actually, me in the doll, and she smiled over. She has to become quite quite a personal. A personal attack, and this is exactly no, what I'm no, talking. No. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Well, it, Let's talk about. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it is fair to say. Just, Mike, Mike, Michael, just, Mike, Michael, just hang on one second, uh, because we can't hear both people when both are yeah. speaking at the same time. Uh, yeah, but no, I understand, yeah. uh, and, and this uh, cuts to the well, bone. I think for both of you, and that's why you said, Pauline, yeah. that you believe it's a personal attack. But I don't think it is a personal attack uh, to talk about your mandate, and I think that's what Michael Fitzmaurice was questioning when he said. Uh, that uh, uh, you are in politics uh, because you were appointed to the Shannon rather than getting elected. I wasn't actually appointed. I was elected, and uh, and Michael knows that. But in any case, in any case, the, the the point here is I am chairperson of the Green Party, and we have many different people in the Green Party, and there are just as many people in rural Ireland as in urban Ireland who care about the environment. And the whole premise of this seems to be anti-environment. And the the point about it is that the Green Party has actually stepped up to the plate and is turning the ship when it comes to supporting farmers for the future. Because for the last few decades... I believe that farmers and rural okay. Ireland has not been supported. Okay, well, let, well, well, let's tease that out because Michael Fitzmaurice said it'll be a disaster if uh, thirty or forty percent of the land I- isn't being farmed because because of rewetting. Uh, is that anti-environment? Do you think, Pauline O'Reilly? Is is it anti-environment? Uh, it is anti-environment the, the way that we have directed farmers to go and the, the kind of supports that have been there have done. Just take up on the point that he made yeah, about thirty to forty percent. Yeah. From, from the from the point of draining land, it's, we actually know that draining land now is not supportive of the environment, and we have huge emissions problems from draining land, and um, that is peaty and. Um, there is going to be, coming down the line, an opportunity, I would say, for farmers to sign up to something that will support them uh, with money in their pockets, but it's all voluntary okay. in the same way as organic. Okay, let Michael Fitzmaurice... to organic, it's voluntary. If you want to um, go on to the acre scheme, it's voluntary. Michael Fitzmaurice, there'll be an alternative, in other words, is the response. Well, first of all, I did just go back to what I said earlier. And if it's 100% of your farm, um, you don't need to be farming. The one cattle or sheep in it, or do you want it to get up in the morning and go out doing something? You rewet this area. And yes, Pauline is right. Money will be offered. 
And what will happen then? Have a look at the burden in Clare, where money was offered for 10 to 15 years. And now they've told them, I should look at that, you go into the acre scheme, the same as, my, as someone in where I'm from or someone in Louth is from. Because there's no new money and the money has run out on that. And they end up with their left high and dry. Will you, if you have your land re-wetted, you don't need to live in that area because you don't need to get up in the morning and make or look at a, a, a you or whatever. And what you will do is you will drive the next generation away. And I've mentioned it earlier, and this is what my point is. I've said very clearly that an economic, you know, assessment isn't done to the local. What will happen to the local school if you don't need to live in that area? What will happen to the local football team if you don't live in that area? What will happen to the local butcher shop or the local shop store if you don't live in that area? And second point is, Michael, and let, correct, con, con, basically tell me if I'm wrong, Pauline. In the last years, Pippa Hackett has been the minister over forestry. Since 1940, we never saw worst planting records in forestry. And this year will be the highest, will be the lowest record ever of the number of trees planted. And she a green minister. Okay. So I rest my case. Senator O'Reilly. There'll be uh, one and a half thousand hectares planted um, but, this this spring. But is that the lowest? Is that the lowest on record since 1940? For, for this year, we, we we don't know what it's going to be for this year. But I don't believe that that will be the case for the simple reason that Europe is to decide on much better rates for farmers Audience, in Ireland for, for planting in, in the next couple of months. But in the meantime, those who um, who did look for planning last year, they're actually um, going to get those same rates because we put in an in interim measure. But listen, but listen. Um, l- l- go back to Michael Fitzmaurice. Just uh, stay on the forestry then, if you will, Michael. Will we... Will, 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 we do have a, we do have an issue with um, with the fact that Europe has to agree uh, because we're in Europe we have to agree for trade reasons they have to agree to the rates that we're proposing for farmers to get right. but they would be much much better than ever before okay so we, we're going but, to see a ramping but, up but, but it, it, it's um, one of the alternatives that you're proposing for farmers in order to reduce uh, the size of uh, the national herd Michael Fitzmaurice you can't look for a license to plant this minute that's the fact so let us not be talking about we last October, um, the Pippa Haggis and the Greens and the government decided to announce 1.3 billion in forestry. They hadn't even the state aid approval got. You cannot get approval to plant a, a tree this minute. Okay, that sounds like the cart before the horse, Senator O'Reilly. So um, anybody who did look for for planning permission last year for a license last year, they're they're being they're being given they're being given the rates um, that are being proposed this year. Which which which, um, for for planting at the moment there'll be one one and a half thousand hectares this spring planted. But I mean, Michael's right to the extent that we are waiting for Europe. But you can't you can't get a license. For the overall approval, you made, um, you, you, what did you say? One point three billion you've made available, but you can't get a, a license. Um, uh, is that not the cart before the horse? People who who did get licenses last year are now planting, and they are getting the preferable rates. So there are better rates, and will be better rates than ever before for farmers but, to plant forests. But when the Green Party is criticised, it's quite often on the basis that your policies are premature, laudable but premature, like transport for example, carbon tax on motorists uh, who can't get a bus, who can't get a train. I, I mean, look, 
they, we have to do two things and one is to ramp up supply which is what we're doing which is one new rural bus service a week um, and also we have to um, in, ensure that you know people are p- protected from the worst effects of climate action mm. but of course of course and um, not everybody is going to one rural bus a week how, how many years or decades would it take before everybody in the country would have the option of taking the bus rather than using their car so when we came into government only 53% of people had an option in rural Ireland of taking a bus and when we are you know towards the end of this term it'll be 70% is it 100% no but it is more than has been invested for decades okay. in, um, in transport Michael Fitzmaurice that sounds pretty impressive in itself doesn't it? Yeah well, watch the way the wording goes that you have an option of taking a bus you better have a certain time because I see the and, and, and there is some local links rolled out and I welcome that but in fairness you couldn't be working in a lot of places and hoping to get there in a bus in Rhode Island at the moment. Nobody's was, saying that. Well, well hold on. You, you give these figures like as if 55, 53% of the people could jump on a bus anytime and then 73. The fact that... Well, I'd have thought it was the point of the yes, carbon tax, isn't yes, it? That there you, is local, yes, there is local links and I, do, I never deny that. But what no one... And what the Greens seem to... And what most people never get into their head is you can put the buses back. You can give the acre scheme. You can give an organic scheme. And funnily enough, where the organic scheme is being being taken up most, it's actually now there there is the earmarked places for rewetting. You can give ANC and all the different stuff. But Michael, if you end up rewetting your ground, if you end up with an LULUCF, what's called a land use policy, that's detrimental. If you end up with policies on be abandoned or whatever that is driving farmers out you will end up destroying rural Ireland. And you can talk about giving all the money you want to John or Mary Farmer or whoever down the road or bring someone on a bus. But if they don't have a future and if they cannot earn a living, then they're not going to be in it. Okay, let me put that in a question uh, in a different way to you, Pauline O'Reilly. Is your vision for the future of rural Ireland a, a rural Ireland that is not recognisable today? Our vision is to give people choices and and of course they are different choices that had been given previously. People were driven down a road of being um, you know, of being forced into mm. a type of farming. I know, but hopefully I presume, so, I presume you're giving people choices uh, in the hope that it's an offer that they can't or won't refuse and that they'll stop farming the land if they re-wet okay. it or whatever and that would result in a rural Ireland that is unrecognisable to us today, would it not? Absolutely not, because you can still farm when when uh, land is rewet. It doesn't mean flooding. It, it might be a different type of farming, and um, we're absolutely supportive of you know sheep farming, sucker farming, oh, every single type of farming. But what the problem in Ireland is the lack of you can't put cattle or sheep on top of something. I can't. I can't hear what you're saying, Michael. But you know, it's a it's a variety. And that's what Ireland needs, is a variety okay. of farming. I think and, what he was saying uh, was you can't put cattle or sheep on land that has been re-wetted. Well, you can, you can do tillage, so there is a variety of you things that you can do. But, 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 but actually, um, this is about choice for farmers. Mm. This is about choice. But we, we have a reality now. Who are the people who are going to suffer most from um, the disasters of climate action? or climate inaction, and that is going to be, unfortunately, people in rural Ireland. So we have a choice. We can either do nothing, which Michael mm. seems to be suggesting, or oh, we can push in place measures, or we can push in place measures to improve people's lives by 
but putting in options for public transport okay. is it going to be everybody? Absolutely not. All right, let me but put carbon taxes is a hundred percent ring fenced for people who need it, and part of okay. that funding is actually going. Towards Time is getting farming. the better of us. I just like to put one last question to Michael Fitzmaurice, if I can, please. Uh, and uh, that is if. You are right, if we assume that you are right, if Green Party policies were to result in a a disaster for rural Ireland as we know it, what is the alternative? Uh, Because we're talking about the end of the planet unless we act, unless we do something to stop carbon emissions. Well, the first thing is, Michael, if you and me went into a room um, with the rest of our life and everyone in Ireland, we're not going to solve the whole of the planet. Let's, Let's be honest about that. Taking about there are plenty of things that farmers do and are willing to do. Example, um, if you went on the radio and to do, might be worth doing it sometime, if you said to uh, ask the question, would a farmer plant an acre of trees if they had up to 50 acres of land and would they plant two acres of trees um, down by a ditch? Because a thousand trees is an acre of trees. Would they do shelter belts and all of that and that the government give them a grant for it? I have no doubt to do it. We'd get more stuff done if you bring people with you, that will tick the boxes for the climate agenda, as well as as basically doing doing the work. There is heaps of things the farmers are willing to do. They are doing it day in, day out. They are, the, basically, to put it simple, they are the keepers of the environment. And these are the people... Exactly, and let's put money in their pockets for doing on, that. And that's, on, and that's on, ultimately on, what underpins the solution policy. of the whole thing. But what you've got to do is not look down on them, not drive at them, not use the stick. You work with them, and okay. they will work with you. We'll con- con- conclude with you, Senator O'Reilly. I think you need to respond to that. But the the entire uh, premise of you know Michael's argument is that we're not working with people when actually the it's the complete opposite. Everything that is done, everything that is done, is done through consultation. There's no change that's made without consultation. And the farmers that I meet in Connemara are 100% behind acres to the extent that there were 30,000 farmers and now it's signed up to over 47,000 farmers. Okay, we, get into it. I think this debate uh, will continue for some time to come. I think uh, we could uh, continue uh, for many hours on the radio today if we had that time, but we don't, so we have run out of time. And thank you both for your time and for joining us on the programme today. We were speaking with the chairperson of the Green Party, that's Senator Pauline O'Reilly, as well as independent TD for Roscommon Galway, Michael Fitzmaurice. Michael Reed on LMFM. That was a heated debate, wasn't it? And it is getting some reaction. Tom says everybody cares about the environment. We just don't agree with the Greens taxing us out of it. Thanks for that. Tom Deirdre says that there should be more buses in rural areas for people to get to and from work or hospital appointments or wherever they need to go. Bring back the train to Navan. I think that's one of uh, the big environmental arguments that has been made in support of uh, the Navan rail line. All right. Uh, Another text uh, from Robbie uh, that I um, yeah Robbie says Eamon Ryan uh, would have us all on bikes if he got his way Uh, Davey uh, in touch with us uh, saying uh 
the Greens are talking tripe. Uh, Robbie said uh, Pauline O'Reilly talking through her hat. Uh, the sooner the better the Greens go out. Uh, it's like the PDs, uh, they're uh, a small party uh, who have too much influence, I think is what Robbie's viewpoint is. John and Navin was in touch with us because uh, the population is growing and as a result of that we're going to have more TDs up to 21 more TDs required for Ireland's expanding population he asks he says it's a, a terrible idea uh, and uh, doesn't seem to have much time for any of uh, the TDs in the Dáil uh, thanks uh, John for your text uh, there were a couple of people in, in the Dáil this week from RD uh, they weren't TDs, but they did get a special mention yesterday. Can we extend a warm welcome to Shauna and Eve from RD Community School? They're from Transition Year. They're doing a work experience theatre. Unfortunately for them, with the Deputy Rory Amariku, but sure, I'm sure you'll be well able. You'll be well able from women. I'm sure they will, and well done, Shauna and Eve, uh, getting a special mention in the doll yesterday from the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald. I'm sure everybody in RD Community School will be waiting to hear the reports from uh, the two girls, as indeed I'm sure their families in RD will be too when they finish uh, their work experience with Rory O'Muraku. Anyway, listen, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're an Electric Ireland customer or indeed a Board Gosh customer, there may be a problem with your bills. The Irish Independent today is saying that thousands of customers could be affected after the two energy providers have admitted billing errors. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on the Environment and Climate Action, Darren O'Rourke, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Darren, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Let's talk a- about 11,000 Electric Ireland customers, first of all, who didn't receive a bill last month. Uh, and in some cases, some customers have not received a bill for four months. I suppose that means inevitably they're going to end up with very, very hefty bills. Yeah, that, that's the case. And, and this is, uh, um, it's, it's quite an incredible situation and, and for, for two companies to be, to be caught in, in different circumstances but related is, is uh, quite extraordinary. In the case of Electric Ireland, it's around 11,000 customers. Um, apparently, it's a, a, a group of customers who are transitioning, you know, who, whose contracts are running out and they're transitioning on to another contract and they would have been due a, a a, a dividend in relation to that and whatever glitch within the system happened, it's resulted in, in those people's bills not being issued. So, so they've been, they've been delayed. Um, as you say, uh, some people haven't received a bill in four months. Um, we know the type of, of winter we've had and the, uh, the cost of, of electricity. Anyone that, that has received a, an electricity bill uh, knows all about it. And, and these, uh, this group of people, including, I expect, um, some, some vulnerable customers, uh, people who are, who are on uh, bill pay because, um, because they've, they've been identified as vulnerable customers um, may be affected now, so it's 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 quite an incredible situation, um, and you know it, it's it, it's going to be very difficult for those people um, in in May time, um, because many of them will be will be unaware. I have to say, do you think I so? Know, 
Yeah, I, I, I do think so, because uh, a small number of people contacted me and contacted, contacted colleagues. Um, and when we contacted uh, Electric Ireland, they dealt with them on a case-by-case basis and just saw them as, as, as anomalies and glitches and didn't see a pattern within it, that there was actually a cohort of customers um, that, that, uh, um, that, that were affected by this. Mm. I think for, for many people, the... Um, Undoubtedly, you know, though, there will be some who will have stayed quiet and hope for the best. Oh, 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 oh perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. And, and two things. One, I think some people, you know, the the the, the bill comes out in a direct debit, and um, you know they, they wouldn't be keeping a close eye on it. So, some other people um, who are watching, you know, who who have to to watch every euro that's coming in and coming out. Um, uh, you know, if if they weren't aware of it, they will be really exposed. You know, if they, if they carried on and thought everything was 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 in order and and hadn't noticed that the the ESB bill hadn't got uh, hadn't been taken out, um, they will be really exposed. So and that could exactly be exactly the problem for board gosh customers uh, because uh, people who pay by direct debit uh, would have said. Uh, double payments taken from their accounts yesterday. Now, I'm sure there's some people who wouldn't have had enough money in their uh, account to pay on the double. Absolutely. That's the, you know, again, a a related issue with Borgosh Energy, um, 11,500 customers who, through a glitch, apparently at the the bank's end, um, meant that a double payment was, so so the the, the bill was taken out twice, um, as you say, and I think it's likely the case for for, for many people, um, they may not have had the the double payment uh, available in the account. Um, I think there's a question there, and uh, whether, whether there will be charges for any sort of overdraft. I think it would be really inappropriate if if charges like that were made. Uh, Electric Ireland contacted pe- or, or sorry, Borgosh Energy contacted people yesterday um, and is in the process of, of rectifying that and mm-hmm. making the, the the repayments. But again, another glitch in the in the system. And I have to say, all of this, uh, Michael, for me, and I'm going into the doll at, at half ten to, to raise these issues with the with the Minister for for Energy and Environment. Um, you're looking at companies reporting record profits. Mm. We've reported the highest prices for for electricity in all of Europe, the eighth highest price for, for gas. And then you have this type of, of sloppy practice. It is um, sloppy, but uh, it's a mistake on the part of Board Gosh uh, that probably will be cleared up. You'd hope that would be the case and that people won't be in trouble with their banks if the money wasn't there. And if the money was there, that it'll be repaid into their accounts. And Board Gosh is it's trying to do that uh, as we speak. It, it, it's a different situation, is it not, with uh, Electric Ireland? Uh, because we know that people have had huge bills, as you say, running into many hundreds, if not thousands, over the winter months. Uh, and if they're now facing a, a, a double bill after four months not having to pay a bill, uh, that could prove really problematic. Uh, will they owe that money? Is it their debt and should they repay it? Oh, well, well, I, I think you know it is the case if you, if you use the electricity, if you use the energy, and uh, you, you're liable for the cost of it. But I also think there has to be a recognition here that there is a responsibility, and there's literally a regulatory responsibility. So much for the regulator, but there is a, a regulatory responsibility on Electric Ireland to to meet a billing schedule, and um, they they haven't done that, so so they will have to take responsibility for that themselves. I think on on individual cases there 
would need to be an assessment of um, ability to pay given the given the, the the circumstances. If you know there is need for for a payment reschedule or for particular approaches in individual cases, that should be the that should be the case. But there has to be a recognition, um, fair enough, that the responsibility for people to pay for their electricity, but also on this massively profit, profitable energy company to to live up to to its responsibilities. So it's a mess mm. that has been created, being created not by individual uh, customers, but by the, the company themselves. And I, I think, you know, there's a real role for the regulator and for the minister to ensure that, that this stuff is, is, is wor- worked out, that it doesn't happen again, of course, mm. but in this case, for these 11,000 customers, that uh, a solution is is found for them, and, and indeed, mm-hmm. 20, over twenty two thousand, twenty two and a half thousand customers affected overall by the two mistakes. Uh, but you spoke about uh, the huge profits that the energy companies are, are making. Uh, maybe, uh, in fairness to the energy companies, we could finish on that note because I also see in the Irish Independent today that SSE Electricity uh, is giving money back to two hundred and forty seven thousand customers, eight point six million euro which will result in about 35 euro per household. Yeah, well, I think, you know, in the, in the first instance, I think that reflects the, the, the level of profitability of, of that individual company. I know um, uh, Electric Ireland uh, did something similar last year and gave 50 euros uh, back to individual customers. But I, I believe we're falling as a state uh, far, far short of, of holding these energy companies to account. In fact, I think uh, they're giving the government a runaround, the runaround and the government are allowing them to give them the runaround. They're, they're complicit in this massive profiteering, like super normal profits that they're reporting. And as I say, people are still paying the highest electricity prices in, in, in Europe. And that's completely unacceptable. And um, we've got no... Uh, uh, line of sight into the the level of profits outside of the the end of year reports. Uh, companies talk about well, um, despite the fact that the wholesale price of gas has really reduced, um, that hasn't been passed on to to customers. That's deeply unfair. People people know that uh, these companies are making uh, super normal profits, and 35 euros here, 50 euros there is nowhere close to uh, what is is fair in relation to this. And at the same time as all of that, we have a government dragging their heels on the windfall tax. They refuse to introduce an energy price cap. They refuse to empower the regulator and give them the resources and uh, 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 power to, to go in and hold these energy companies okay. to account. As you say, these are some of the issues that you'll be raising in the chamber this morning. Thank you for joining us in advance. That's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on the Environment and Climate Action, Darren O'Rourke, who's a TD for Mideast. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we all know how important exercise is, don't we? Don't we? Okay, well, I I think we probably do. Uh, But what does that actually mean? Uh, Here's a a couple of questions for you uh, to think uh, about before we get the answers for you. How much time should you spend exercising a a week? Uh, And the second question is, Uh, Think about your first answer before you answer the second question. How much time do you actually spend exercising a week? Uh, Well, let's speak uh, to Professor Roger O'Sullivan, who's uh, Director of Ageing Research and Development at uh, the Institute of Public Health. A very good morning to you, Professor. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, Maybe you begin by telling us how much exercise we need a week. Okay. good morning, Michael, and thank you very much. 
uh, for the opportunity this morning to talk about uh, physical activity. Uh, we need 150 minutes per week. That's the recommended level, but you can go higher than that. Uh, and that's the term moderate physical activity. So that's things like swimming or walking or cycling or even gardening. Mm. Uh, but also the other part is about uh, vigorous type of activity. And that's about 75 minutes uh, per week. And that can be part of your 150. So that could be running, could be sport, it could be going up and down stairs. Mm. But the message here is uh, physical activity is the cornerstone of uh, being healthy and we over the last 50 years uh, society's become much more sedentary you can sit mm. on your sofa and do your shopping oh it's very easy yeah yeah and especially with retail parks drive to the shops and all of that kind of thing but uh, just that 150 minutes to break it down uh, does that mean that a, a 20 minute walk uh, a day uh, or a little bit more than that is around sufficient that would be the minimum of course yeah well look uh the message is, you know, every minute counts. It's really important. So some people see it as in 30 minutes a day, five times a week. Mm. Uh, but it's whatever way that works for you as an individual. Okay. And, and that's part of the message of just moving more when we can. Right. Um, and, and, and trying to make it in many ways uh, normal, that it's, that it's easy to do that it's actually uh, achievable mm. and it becomes very routine. Okay. So, a simple way, so a simple way, Michael, is uh, if, you, if you go to the car park, if you go shopping and you drive there, maybe rather than just parking outside of the door, parking that little bit farther away in the car park mm. where you can actually get the bit of walking. So it's trying to get the walking into your, your, your routine. Mm. I started out by asking our listeners uh, uh, how much time they believe they should spend. Uh, you've now told them it's uh, 150 minutes. Uh, and for those of you who got that correct, I suppose, well done. But the second question was, how much time do people actually spend exercising? And we do have a- an insight into this because of a-, a-, a lucid talk survey. Yes. So we carried out a, a-, a survey in 2020. Uh, one in the summer of 2021 and it was really interesting in terms of how many minutes that people actually uh, take part in physical activity and what you've got is that actually uh, quite a, a number of people are, are actually inactive uh, any days and we're, we're talking about inactive where they aren't uh, actually uh, raising their breath or increasing their heart rate but then you've actually got uh, a, a good level, so about a third of people uh, are doing that uh, five plus days a week. So in Ireland, about 67% of the population uh, are uh, considered active 31 minutes. You know, Sorry, 60% of the population are being active 31 mm. minutes. Okay? But it's really important just to think about building physical activity and being active into your daily life because the benefits are so many. And, you know, it's in terms of it benefits your sleep, uh, it helps you maintain a healthy weight, manage stress, improves your quality of life. It's really important in terms of type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Better sex life. (laughs) 
in terms of uh, 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 joints and back pain, you know, yeah. all these mm. different things are really, really important. Yeah. Feeling better in yourself, feeling happier and so on. I think, though, that you've a message that you want to deliver, especially to women. And if we go back to the start again and that first question, how much time do you think you should spend exercising on a weekly basis? From the survey results, more women get that right. They know more about what exercise they should be engaging in. Yeah, so women have high levels of knowledge of the benefits of physical activity. Uh, They have high-level knowledge of the recommended level, number of minutes of physical activity. But actually, um, when you ask about being active, they have lower levels of physical activity uh, than men. So that's really, you know, that's a notable issue to try to understand uh, why is that the case. Sports? it could be issues in terms of time, mm. it could be issues in terms of safety, it could be issues in terms of ac- access to suitable facilities mm. uh, and services. Uh, and, and that's really important to, to, to understand and, and, and to, to address what can we do. Sport probably feeds into it, though. I imagine more men participate in, in sport than women. Well, if, yeah, if you think about that's an historical trend, and you also often think about the physical activity we do at schools, mm. it's very team based because that's how schools are organised. But actually, after you leave school, it becomes harder to take part in team based activities, and and th- so that's one of the issues. Also, in terms of gender based, there was a, a large piece of work undertaken in England. Um, on the issue of a female involvement in sport and physical activity, it was called This Girl Can Campaign. And what they found was uh, females were less likely than males to take part because there was a feel of, of judgment and uh, not being good enough, concerns over appearance, practical challenges, mm. no time, issues such as um, you know, gym cost or membership fees. Issue, uh, nearly a quarter of women were concerned about... Uh, feeling comfortable uh, in themselves when exercising and, and one in five uh, in that campaign were concerned about their safety when exercising. Mm. So the things we can think about in terms of in families, in society and, and trying to support us all but just recognising that knowledge is really important mm. to being physically active but there's something in this that the results of this survey tell us that we actually need support and encouragement to actually be active. So if you think in people's own homes, uh, women are often taking on the caring roles mm. for the family, for their relatives, and that eats that eats into the time that they might have available to actually uh, undertake a walk, mm. uh, go for a run, go for a gym. Um, uh, go for a swim. So that's mm. that's that's important, really, to recognise. Just back up a, a, a minute, if you wouldn't mind, uh, Professor, uh, because you said we need 150 minutes exercise a, a week at a minimum, yeah. a, a little over 20 minutes a day. But you said you could 
uh, count the time that you spend in the garden in that. Uh, and I was surprised to hear that because, I mean, that can mean many things. You could uh, spend the whole day digging up the garden and I'm sure that would be wonderful exercise. Uh, but you could also spend the whole day in the garden without really exerting yourself. Uh, and I always thought that if you were to go for this 20-minute walk a day, that you'd need uh, to... Uh, not be uh, sort of dragging yourself along the street but you'd need to to get your heart beating and to to be almost out of breath uh, to get the kind of exercise that is beneficial. Yes, so in that 150 minutes we're talking about moderate intensity physically where you increase your uh, breathing. The best way to think of it is you can can talk uh, but you can't uh, you couldn't particularly um, sing a long song Mm-hmm. Uh, vigorous is much more where you're finding it very, you're finding it more difficult to actually talk, and you definitely couldn't couldn't sing. But my next, uh, uh, I, I I imagine the issue is about uh, how uh, moderate or vigorous you do your gardening. But part of that also is actually getting active uh, in the garden. Because if you're thinking of digging or cutting grass or weeding. It's about movement, and it's trying to break up the periods of time that mm. were that were actually sedentary, because that's a really important. If you think about, uh, you and I are talking now. Mm. I imagine you're uh, sitting sitting in, in in the studio at the minute. Mm. Um, I'm sitting as well, and that becomes so routine. Mm. And it's and uh, our the, the listeners, maybe some of them are sitting, some of them are walking. Um, some of them are standing, but it's trying to get more movement into our our, our daily lives. That's really, really the mm-hmm. message. Uh, but again, um, uh, a little physical, some physical activity is good, more is better, and it's never too late to start. You can make a start today, and every minute counts. Okay. So mm. even the little, uh, the light intensity, so you were talking about say in the garden, the very light intensity, mm. that, that still counts, that still helps. Mm. It's very good for your mental health as well. It's really good for your mental health. Mm. And, you know, we've known for generations the importance about physical activity, getting out and having a walk in the countryside, or, or just getting out. Because if you think about it from a public health perspective, you get a number of different benefits. So you get a physical benefit from being out walking, but you actually make meet other people and have a conversation. So you get a social benefit from mm. that as well. And that's really, really important. Um, but also, the, the bit that we, we, we need to recognise is actually the strength building. So it's important as you age is to keep your muscles and bones and joints strong. So it's important to think about that. You may go to the gym, but you don't have to go to the gym. You can have your own gym at home, but you can use tins of beans as your as your weights. <laughs> okay. uh, if you're shopping, you yeah. can, if, mm. if you're shopping, if you're actually carrying your bags, mm. that's considered um, uh, 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 weight uh, strengthening mm. activity. But you can also try yoga and tai chi and these different activities. So mm-hmm. if you think about it like this, um, you have to get something that works for you as an individual. There's no, there's very little sense of me saying, right, everybody needs to walk if yep. you don't like that. But mm. if you like to cycle, try cycling. Yeah. If you if you want to dance, mm. 
Right, right. I'm just going to say there's loads of things on YouTube it's to lash today by all accounts uh, but that doesn't mean that you have to go outside to exercise uh, I know my mother used to always get up uh, when the ads came on in between the programmes to walk about to get some exercise but you could do a dance routine or Pilates or whatever it is uh, on YouTube or, or, or whatever the case may be there's so many options for people I suppose we started off the conversation this morning asking how much time should we exercise uh, you've told us it's 150 minutes a week minimum and uh, whether it's men or women listening to us uh, this morning uh, we've been informed uh, and it's up to us now to do it it's in the interest of our good health Professor thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning Professor Roger O'Sullivan uh, of uh, the Institute of Public Health he's uh, their Director of Ageing Research and Development Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about our overcrowded hospitals. And it's almost now the new normal that we've arrived at a point where over 500 seems to be normal when I don't think we can ever accept it as anywhere near normal. And then the average wait time for admission to a bed in hospitals in 2019, in February 2019, it was 10 and a half hours. In February of this year, it was 11.4 hours. So all of those metrics, Minister, are going in the wrong direction. The length of time people are waiting in emergency departments, the number of people in hospital trolleys, and the numbers of people who are waiting has come down slightly in terms of long waits, but it's still exceptionally high. So can I first of all put it to you that we have a long, long, long way to go before we get anywhere near meeting the Salon to Care targets. Would you first of all accept that? Fully, Deputy, with, 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 one, with one addition, which is whilst we, I fully accept it, um, we, we're, we've 490-something uh, thousand people now waiting above those 10 and 12-week targets, so I fully accept it. It is important that we say that very significant progress is also being made. That's uh, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, fully accepting uh, that uh, the Slanchicare targets have a long way to go before they're met. He was responding to Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. And are you satisfied that we can recruit the staff to open those beds? So will we see a plan not just for the beds, but also for staff? I, I, I am... But, but I want to say this is not easy. It's not easy. David Cullinan, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, it, it was uh, a peculiar response from uh, the Minister to state that the job in hand is not easy given how important this job is and how long the crisis in hospitals has been going on. This is a problem that is older than the housing problem. Good morning, Michael Thurston. And yes, you're right, it, it's a, a crisis for a long, long number of years. I made the point to Stephen Donnelly yesterday that uh, a lot of the staff that I talk to, uh, like the public sector, they want to work in public hospitals. Uh, they train to work in Ireland, but many of them say to me that they feel that the service that they are working in is in perpetual crisis. And it seems every week, every month, every year, when they look at what's happening in the hospitals, because the data that is undisputable that the minister has to accept is all going in the wrong direction in terms of the numbers of people on waiting lists, the length of time people are waiting in emergency departments for access to a bed, uh, but also the numbers of people on trolleys. We all see those numbers every day, every week, and they're all exceptionally high. But it doesn't tell the full picture of what it's like if you are a staff member working in an emergency department every single day. And I know many nurses, many doctors who dread going into work because they are working 
almost on a constant basis in an overcrowded, highly pressurised situation. And we have known for a long, long number of years that we don't have the capacity of the public system. So despite the unprecedented spend in, in health last year, uh, we still don't have sufficient numbers of beds. The Minister is now talking about rolling out 1,500 additional beds in two years and building rapid modular uh, units, which I would support, and I've been calling on the Minister to do exactly that for some time. So obviously any additional mm. capacity is to be welcomed. But hospitals also need access to diagnostic capacity and surgical theatre capacity. The numbers of people who are waiting for a diagnostic scan have gone up by 80,000 in two years. So we have over 230,000 people waiting for a scan, separate from the almost 900,000 people who are on acute hospital waiting list. It's a 60% increase over a six-year period. Yes, and, and the Minister acknowledged that. So from 2013 onwards, we've seen an exponential rise in the numbers of people who are waiting. And part of the problem is hospital capacity. Mm. Part of the problem is that we simply can't recruit the staff. And again, I reminded the Minister that the housing crisis, and you mentioned that, is also playing a part, particularly in Dublin, in Cork, in Galway, in major cities, where affordable housing is not an option for for many young people. So graduates are unfortunately taking a decision to emigrate, not because they want to, some do, but many are leaving because they they simply can't access housing. And they're overworked. Uh, The Minister was uh, speaking to you and other members of the Roxas Health Committee yesterday about that and other issues. uh, And uh, he has one potential solution, a proposal at least, that a GP would refer uh, one of their patients to a hospital rather than a consultant. That's not a new idea, isn't it? I mean, I think the first time I heard that must have been 25 years ago. Well, GPs already do refer uh, patients in and I I think that the first thing the Minister needs to realise when it comes to primary care and community care that we don't have enough GPs. So if you talk to anybody who understands this issue, uh, particularly the ICGP, who are the ones that are responsible for training GPs, but also the IMO, they'll say there's a real crisis in primary practice, mainly because if you have an ageing demographic of doctors, we're not training enough. Uh, and in many rural areas, it's very difficult for a person to even get onto a, a GP service. Many people are now finding they're waiting longer for an appointment. So we have to increase that capacity, and that, unfortunately, it's going to take some time because even if you start to increase training places, it takes five, six, seven years for a doctor to be fully trained and working in, in either a private practice or in, in, in the public space, which would be very small numbers. So I, I think uh, that's what we need to do when it comes mm. to primary care. But the, the other ingredient to reducing overcrowding in hospitals is actually looking at what's happening outside of hospitals. So it's estimated that about 40% of patients who attend emergency departments are actually people who can't get access to, to out of our GP services. They're people with chronic pain who should be cared for in the community. And the Minister did talk yesterday about what's called the Enhanced Community Care Programme. We have multidisciplinary teams that provide care for older people and, or, or people with chronic pain in the community. But many of those teams are not properly staffed. Uh, they've been set up, but they simply don't have the ability to provide the level of service which is necessary. And, and the result of that is if you can't be cared for in the community uh, or if you can't get access to a GP out of hours, then the only option for somebody is to go to an emergency department. And that, in part, is why we have this perfect storm or this crisis. Um, and then what happens to hospital management 
They don't have enough beds to admit patients quick enough. Mm. They also don't have enough uh, community beds to discharge patients who need recovery beds. I've been saying to the Minister and the the Nursing Homes Ireland have been saying the same. We should be contracting uh, on a long-term basis more beds from private nursing homes for step-down and recovery beds. In fact, the manager in the hospital in Waterford did exactly that with a number of private nursing homes. And that allowed her to have speedier discharges of patients and then have more beds available. So there are solutions. Um, mm. But the Minister made the point that a, a thousand hospital beds have been added over the last three years, 410 community beds and 65 critical care beds, 261 acute beds and 16 critical care beds are uh, expected uh, to come into play uh, over the course of uh, the next couple of years. Yes, and, and, and I welcome every single additional bed that's put into the public system. Uh, the problem is, and the Minister accepted this as well, that for, for whatever reason, uh, and I still can't understand why the decision was made, but leading up to the Celtic Tiger years and during that time period, we actually started to close hospital beds uh, and we actually ended up with less beds uh, in 2013 than we ever had. And it's no coincidence then every year since we've seen hospital waiting lists go up and we've seen the numbers of people waiting on trolleys. So we haven't had a day this month or any time this year yet, yet where we've had less than 500 patients on a hospital trolley. And that would have been unheard of last year or in previous years. So all of those metrics tell us that there's a problem. So we're still playing catch-up to get mm. to a point that we have the same number of beds that we had in the system 15 years ago. So we obviously and we have a, 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 a growing population uh, if you take the southeast where I'm from, the population has grown by 14% since. So you have more demand, you have a bigger population, but yet you're only playing catch-up on beds. And I think that's part of the problem. But the other issue that I think the minister needs to get to grips with, and also the head of the HSE, because it isn't all about money. And I know that when we talk about healthcare, people will point to the billions of euros that we spend, which I think they have a right to do, and demand that we get good value for money. There are hospitals that that are doing smart things. So I gave the example of Waterford, which actually has performed very well and it's been recognised right across the board that they don't have the same numbers of people in hospital trolleys. The patient flow of, of, of admitting patients much quicker to beds is, is uh, all really good. And it's because of very good management in the hospital and taking decisions such as having a relationship with the private hospital, getting capacity there. They have doctors working longer, more decision makers working in emergency departments uh, longer than other hospitals. Good teamwork between those doctors and the other uh, nurses, buying up uh, recovery beds and step-down beds and having those available. And I was saying to the Minister yesterday again, you need to be mandating other hospitals to do what the best-performing hospitals are doing. There's no point in... Uh, praising one hospital and mm. saying that's great uh, if other hospitals are not doing likewise. Uh, a universal approach, I suppose. Precisely, because he was he, he identified himself, Limerick, mm. as, as one uh, example of... He, he compared the numbers of hospital beds and compared the capacity that Limerick has versus what Waterford has, and they have much more capacity. Mm. Yes, the results... In, in Limerick are much poorer and, and the emergency department performance is, 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 is much poorer. Okay. So I don't understand why there isn't regular meetings and oversight of hospital managers, led of course by the, the, the HSE senior officials, the chief operations officer, the chief clinical officer and the head of the HSE mm. 
they need to be mandating, not asking, but mandating mm. best practice across okay. all. Okay, the Minister said they're working on it day and night, but it's difficult. Um, but I want to ask you about another issue that you raised at the Health Committee yesterday, if I can. You asked the Minister about abortion and uh, the review into the existing legislation because we're about to have another unholy row about abortion in this country and you and the other members of the Health Committee are going to be front and centre of that debate because the report is being referred to you but before uh, you give us your thoughts maybe we'll hear what the Minister had to say. Uh, I brought the report to uh, Cabinet yesterday. Uh, The Irish Times did have it up. They're obviously very well informed. Um, We're um, putting it up publicly uh, today and obviously sending it to this report for consideration. Um, My ask of government yesterday was that um, the, the report would be referred to this committee so that will be referred to you today and that this committee would be asked to uh, report back to government, report back to me, presumably through me, um, on the legislative proposals. Now, obviously, the committee will take a view on some of the operational ones as well, and the committee will, will, will decide its own scope in terms of what, what you all want to cover. Um, the, the, the piece that I would really value engagement and detailed engagement with the committee on is the legislative recommendations. There's around 10 or 11 legislative recommendations. Some of them are pretty straightforward. Some of them, I think, will be quite sensitive, like the three-day wait, for example. Um, And I think it's going to require the kind of solid, reasoned, respectful debate that this committee did in the last doll. Right, now that's uh, Stephen Donnelly uh, speaking to the Oireachtas Health Committee, outlining to you, David Cullinan, that it will be up to you to take a, a look at this report along with the other members of the committee and make your recommendations to government. Am I, I right in thinking, though, uh, that you're concerned that there will be no obligation on the government to accept your recommendations? Well, just to unpack some of that, it's not the role of the Health Committee to do the job of government. So this report was commissioned by the government and it makes policy recommendations which suggest that there is a need for legislative change. Ultimately, that's a matter for government. What the Health Committee will do, so we're very clear about this, and obviously we will have to, in private session, agree how we're going to approach this issue. Uh, But already my understanding of what we will do is that we will engage with the author of the report, we will tease out the policy changes which she and her team have recommended and and tease out the rationale for them and simply report what that rationale is. Uh, So it's not for for the Health Committee to do the job of government. The government have to make decisions and every political Mm. party will obviously have to make decisions on on where they stand. And And Leo Vradker and Micheál Martin are reluctant to take those decisions. Well, I think that would be a mistake. So, uh, first of all, I don't uh, expect an unholy row, as you put it. I, I, I hope that whatever discussions we have, certainly in the Health Committee, will be very respectful. So I know there are members of the, the Health Committee that have a different view than I do on the three-day wait. But what, it, what I would say to those members is there is very, very clear evidence and, and a very clear rationale for removing the mandatory three-day wait in that report. Uh, my understanding of when this uh, three-day uh, waste period, which is mandatory, and you then have to have a second consultation, which can create a lot of barriers for women. But my understanding of the reason that was put into the legislation in the first instance wasn't medical, uh, and there wasn't any legal reason. It was a political insertion 
into the uh, into the legislation at the time. So that's a matter now for the government to address. But we have this report. The report uh, is evidence based. It's talked talk to a lot of women who have gone through and used the services, and their view is that this is a barrier. It didn't make any difference to the vast, vast, vast majority of women who use the service, mm. and many of them found it patronising. And it goes back to what I and others were saying at the time that we have to trust women to make decisions that they feel are in their best interest. I know, uh, I know, but there's the- medical or legal reason for it. And it is acting as a barrier to some women accessing the service. I know, but, but the I other argument is that people voted on the legislation uh, when they repealed the eight, and that was one of the safeguards that was given to people. And and in the legislation, Michael was built into it a review of the mm. operation. Oh, I understand, yeah, yeah, which is yeah, what we now yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. So, listen, what mm. I'm saying is, I respect mm. the fact that people have different opinions, but we can't ask an author of the report to go and talk to women who use the service on the basis of looking at what potential barriers are in place and then when the author comes back to instantly dismiss all of the recommendations. I have some concerns about some of what's been proposed um, and I will have an opportunity to tease those out with Mm -hmm. the author of the report. So I accept that none of this is easy and I accept a lot of it is complex, particularly when you're dealing with issues like conscientious objection uh, and the 12-week waste. There's lots of issues that I think we need to be very careful how we come at it. But then there are more for me which are straightforward. And the more straightforward one, which I think could be done very quickly, is a geographical imbalance that exists in some parts of the country where it is difficult for women to access services. And and what the report was looking for was a mapping out of what GPs, what services are are being provided in areas and look at where we have those Mm -hmm. weaknesses and then try and and put in place bespoke solutions uh, such as local centres or local hubs for women to access services. For me, that makes sense. Okay. And what we should be doing is making sure that what we voted for back in 2018 is actually in practice what's happening. Okay. I'm sure everybody will expect a, a respectful debate uh, at the Health Committee. Nothing less than that in Leinster House, but I do think that there will be an unholy row over the coming months outside of uh, the House. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, David. Thank you indeed for joining us. That's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you may have heard uh, the results of uh, this survey on sick pay yesterday. Excel Recruitment uh, spoke to 100 small and medium enterprises. 42% of them said the state should pay sick leave. 18% say they're unable to afford to pay it themselves. 19% say they might have to cut wages because of the cost. And 29% say they may have to recruit fewer people as a result of the cost. Let's speak to Paddy Malone Piero of Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. Good morning to you, Paddy. Thanks for joining us. Are you surprised by those findings? Yep, I am. Um, most employers do recognise the responsibilities to employees. They, they treat them accordingly. Um, most uh, salaried or, uh, people are in, actually entitled to these as a matter of course in their contracts. We're really talking about the retail sector here and part-time employment. It does apply in that circumstance and there would be occasions where it would happen, but when you sit down and look at the legislation and you start to think about it, you realise that this really is a ball of smoke, to be quite honest with you. Um, I don't think it changes what how people, myself or any other employer that I know, w- would treat their employees. Mm. It's not been brought to the attention of the Chamber. I spoke to Chambers Ireland last yesterday, and their feedback from members is that it's it really is 
not too many people are getting excited about it. Okay, it's mandatory, because of course, because treat their employees properly in the first place. Well, yeah. absolutely. Uh, it became mandatory as a result of COVID uh, and the idea, because we all get sick from time to time, uh, but the idea of people going to work when they were sick with COVID uh, and uh, spreading the virus. Uh, but we do all get sick from time to time. Uh, and, you know, we're all entitled to take time off when we are sick. Uh, but you're saying that most uh, employers would feel that way. Most employers would feel that way. I mean, when you, when you sit down and read the legislation and you ask yourself what it's asking, it's actually saying that you can statutorily demand to get paid for a day's sickness uh, at a maximum of 110, pound, 110 euros or 70% of your earnings. But you have to produce a doctor's cert. So you could find yourself paying for the doctor's cert at £55 uh, and not getting £55 back or you're getting very little extra. So most, I think most people will adopt a, a, a sensible approach to this issue, that they don't need the stick. The carrot of having good employee relationships is sufficient to get this done sorted out. Um, there is, and I would agree with those people that say the state are passing the book uh, because this was always the responsibility of the state before now and it's yet another cost that's been put on, on them. But the reality of the situation is dealing with payroll costs on a regular basis, this, this automatically was, was not being passed on to the state on a regular basis. So I, I really don't see what mm. the excitement is at this stage. But why it should, well, why, but why should, why should the state pay uh, employers uh, to compensate their employees if they're off sick? I mean, should employers not look on this in the same way they look on their other obligations? If you're in business, you have to pay your insurance costs, you have to pay your transport costs, you have to pay an awful lot of things, including... And your accountancy sick. costs too, please. Yeah, don't absolutely, forget don't forget that. Yeah. And your advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, look, um, it is a situation where t- twofold. Okay, first of all, the PSI rates in this country are actually quite low. So, um, from the point of view of, is it a huge burden on employers? No. Is it an extra one? Yes. Um, it's been brought in at a time of significant change, particularly in the retail sector. So, its timing could have been better. But I don't think anybody is getting particularly hot, hot, hot under the car over it. That's, that's the point I'm making. OK, very good. Paddy, thank you indeed for making that point and for joining us today. Paddy Malone is uh, the PRO of Dundalk's Chamber of Commerce. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, thanks to Betty Daly who says, uh, despite Stephen Donnelly's fine words, you can be sure if uh, the minister or any of his family needs hospital treatment, they won't have to sit in A&E for days. Thank you, Betty Daly. Uh, another text from somebody who says, it was always going to happen. They let abortion go through with safeguards uh, and now they're taking them all away, which isn't what people voted for. Many people will be shocked by the abortion abortion review report that was released today. The government persuaded many thousands of people to vote for the abortion referendum on the basis that there will be some safeguards uh, for children. Yet five years later, it looks like the government are going to wash away the remaining safeguards. Last year, we had an enormous jump in the number of abortions. It happened a 25% increase. Um, 8,500 unborn children were aborted last year, um, which is an incredible figure, three times nearly what it was in 2017. Um, in, since the legislation was brought in, uh, 25,000 uh, unborn children have been aborted. It's the equivalent to 1,120 uh, classrooms of children. It's catastrophic for each of one of those uh, children. It looks now that the three-day wait, uh, which has saved thousands of lives, is under threat. 
It looks like the ability of the majority of doctors to uh, refuse to carry out abortions on the basis of conscientious objections uh, will be threatened. And Taoiseach, you said in this chamber that you accept that the unborn child is a human life with rights. Is your government about to delete the few remaining rights they have? Ain't too's Pater Tobin was putting those points to the Taoiseach Leo Bradker. You're jumping the gun a bit here. Um, the review was commissioned by government as we were mandated to and required to uh, by the Oireachtas. I want to thank Mary O'Shea for the thorough job that she's done. Uh, I think it's only being published today um, and people have a chance to read it. And in fairness to her, she's done a very thorough job. Um, But all the government has decided is to refer the operational aspects to the HSC for implementation and the legislative aspects, the proposed legislative changes, not proposed by government, proposed by the reviewer, uh, to the Oireachtas Committee on Health for further consideration. Uh, We've made no decision whatsoever uh, on any of those legislative proposals um, it'll now sit with the Oireachtas Committee, they'll have a chance to consider it, make a report back to government, and then we'll consider it then. But I would anticipate this won't be for every party, but certainly for my party, and I think it'll be the same for uh, Fianna Fáil and perhaps uh, Sinn Féin and other parties as well, uh, this will be a free vote uh, and a vote of conscience for people. So it won't be the case that it's the government. Um, but like I say, we're pushing ahead here many steps. That's the Taoiseach Leo Radker. Now, it must have been a very exciting day for Shauna and Eve from our D Community School in the Dáil yesterday, as you heard earlier in the programme. They got a mention from the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald, uh, because they're there doing work experience with Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Muraku, who made quite a, a number of contributions in the House yesterday, including this one on housing in a debate on rent control. It's only a week since I, I was in here and I did what everyone usually does and you check daft.ie and at the time there was 15 houses uh, available in Nundalk. There's now um, eight at the minute. Um, and again, we go through and we look through the prices and you see 1650, 1900, like absolutely crazy numbers. I don't know how anybody could contemplate or put the money together in relation to that. I actually see there's a house, and uh, well, it's a considerable amount of bedrooms, but it's 3,000 euro. 3,000 euro. I, I don't know that I could have told somebody that a number of years ago that you would could be paying that sort of money to rent uh, to rent a house in the general Dundalk area. Well, I'm sure I could have told people. I'm fairly sure they would have laughed at me. But uh, unfortunately, that is not the case. That's Rory Murakou, another local TD. Peter Fitzpatrick uh, is also concerned about uh, the cost of renting in the Dundalk area. The average rent in my constituency of Loud and East Mead is two thousand two hundred euros, and you'd be lucky to find somewhere for these days. 2000 a month, that means a person needs to earn about 17000 a year just to pay the rent, which is more than 50% of the medium income. There are often two working people in one household and they still cannot afford the rent and, and they are being, being made homeless. In many cases, such people are not eligible for social housing support because their income eligibility threshold hasn't been raised in 10 years. One young man from my constituency contacted me because he's in fear of imminent eviction. He was given notice to vacate before the ban came in and is not eligible for the proposed te- uh, tenant in situ scheme. After coming to a foster care, he is currently in a HAP property and has access to two young siblings. This young man is an apprentice surgeon earning 400 euros a week. Although he's been searching, he cannot locate an alternative property unless he pays over 2,000 euros. Lake County Council has no accommodation for him. His only alternative is go to the same community. Somebody on an average income would have to fork out approximately 70% of the income to meet that rent. Needless to say, the deficit impacted the cost of living crisis, 
rising rent and low wages has once again been laid bare as thousands more renters are faced with evictions and the very real threat of being left homeless. With rent rising at the fastest in the rate in 16 years, the government cannot continue to look at other ways as more and more people are forced into homelessness. That's Peter Fitzpatrick. There was much debate in the dawn yesterday on the cost of renting and indeed what landlords are taking in rent. Let's hear a little bit from Junior Minister Kieran O'Donnell now. Be, uh, I suppose a couple of points we'd put on record. 70% of landlords have only one house. They're small landlords. 86% owned one or two. So the greater majority of the market are people that we know, people that are, in many cases, uh, Deputy uh, Healy Ray, made reference to Air Michael Healy Ray. The landlords that we know. A greater majority of the markers are people that we know. And doesn't that encapsulate the problem? Yes, they are. They're people that you know, people that Fianna Fáil knows, people that the Healy Ray landlord party over there uh, know. Um, the problem, a major political problem we have in this country is that we have a landlord's government accountable to a landlord's dog. Right, that's Paul Murphy who tabled this motion on controlling the amount of rent that people pay. It'll be voted on and he asked TDs to think about whether they should vote or not. No TD who is a landlord or who owns a rental property should be voting on this bill. That includes one in five of the current cabinet, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, Minister Stephen Donnelly and Minister Norma Foley. The Dáil Code of Conduct for TDs states that members must base their conduct on a consideration of the public interest and are individually responsible for preventing conflicts of interest. It is obvious to anybody watching this debate that a conflict of interest exists if you are a landlord TD voting against this bill. Because if the bill is passed, it would impact directly on the economic self-interest of landlord TDs who are charging extortionate rents. It would limit the amount of rent that they can suck from their tenants every month and would reduce the market value of their assets. So Paul Murphy was asking TDs who are also landlords to abstain from the vote. So I call on all landlord TDs in the Dáil to do the right thing today to recuse themselves from voting on this bill, from furthering their own economic and class interests at the expense of the renter class, of ordinary working class people and their families. Uh, Paul Murphy then went on, somewhat remarkably, to name all of uh, the TDs who are landlords in the Dáil Chamber chamber yesterday, and that would include local TDs Thomas Byrne and Johnny Gurk. James Connolly once said... Our cities can never be made really habitable or worthy of an enlightened people while the habitations of its citizens remain the property of private individuals. To permanently remedy the evils of city life, the citizens must own their city. I agree wholeheartedly. All right, so that's Paul Murphy. And I'm sure there's few who would disagree with uh, the words of James Connolly. Let's give uh, the final word on the programme today, though, to Margaret, who's texted us to say, I will not take advice from the Greens after their debacle with diesel cars. Boy, did they get it wrong. And I won't be surprised to hear in a few years' time the same about EVs. We still haven't heard a word from the Greens or any government TD about the unfortunate children in Congo mining the lithium 
with their bare hands for EVs to make the West look good. Why are they so silent on what's happening to these children? Are their lives less important than the climate? These children are being used as slaves. Is Ireland, along with the rest of the world, turning a blind eye to this? Do they care about what happens to them or not? Their silence speaks for itself, says Margaret. Thanks, Margaret. Maggie McGuire, Research Today. Chris Murray was in the control jar. I'm Michael and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.